Hello, everybody, and welcome to Parks Podcast. My name is Austin Parkinson, and this week I brought two guests to the table. My first, Carl Smesko, the head coach of Florida Gulf Coast, dives into some of his coaching philosophies, his outside-the-box thinking, and really good listen uh, if you're a basketball coach. And the second guest, special guest, Tom Brady expert, my brother, Trent Parkinson, joins the pod. But first, Carl Smesko from Florida Gulf Coast. Guest on the pod this week is one of the most innovative minds in all of college basketball. With 500 plus wins to his name and countless NCAA tournament appearances, third among active coaches in winning percentage from Florida Gulf Coast, the head coach Carl Smesco. Carl, thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. So, Similar uh, and to us, uh, college basketball ends abruptly for everybody. You guys were going to be an NCAA tournament team again this year. You know, how did you handle that news with your team? And then what have you been up to uh, in, in the coming you know, weeks uh, since uh, since the season ended? Well, we, you know, we had played a uh, semifinal game uh, for our conference tournament. And we won, and the next day we came in and we had a practice preparing to play Liberty in the championship game. And uh, we, after practice, we were still in a position where we thought we were going to be playing uh, that Sunday. And then later that afternoon or early evening, uh, I got the message that said the championship game was going to be canceled uh, due to the virus. Uh, so all our players were already spread out. So we didn't meet again until the morning. And we we decided to handle it a little differently. Um, you know, they already had found out that it was canceled. So there wasn't anything that I could tell them in terms of uh, news. <laughs> So we just met as a team and we decided to celebrate the part of the season that we did have. Um, we won a regular season conference championship. We had a 30 and three record. Um, you know, there was a lot to celebrate. And when we won the regular season championship, we really didn't celebrate because we were, you know, waiting to hopefully win the tournament and, and get the automatic bid to the NCAA tournament. So we went, uh, downstairs from our film room uh, to the gym and we had a net cutting ceremony for our regular season championship and you know we there were some tears people uh, were getting emotional and, and telling stories and kids were dancing and really we kind of tried to put a spin on it about attitude and being appreciative of what you did get to get to experience rather than dwell on what you didn't. Um, and I thought we had a really good moment there. And then since that time, you know, I've been, uh, our coaches have been contacting recruits and, you know, it's a, a strange landscape right now is we really don't know when visits will be possible again. Uh, we know it won't be for a little bit here at a minimum. And then, you know, staying in touch with recruits, I've been watching a lot of coaching videos, things of that nature, reading books, and uh, trying to keep myself occupied. 
Well, it's definitely a, a really bizarre time, as you mentioned, talking to recruits, even to tell them, you know, when campus is going to be open and what that looks like. Uh, is a fluid, you know, fluid situation and an obviously a strange one, you know, for all of us. I want to back up and, and, and talk about your coaching career and get us some philosophy. But the, where I want to start, you know, I was researching your bio, your first year as a college head coach. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, but uh, head coach at Walsh uh, picked sixth and your team wins the Division Two National Championship in year one. That's not how most careers start. So walk me through what that first year was like and how you guys were able to win a national championship. Well, I was the I was a graduate assistant uh, the year before at Walsh University, just for one year. Uh, at the end of the year, the head coach left to become a principal at a high school, and the players went to the athletic director, Jim Dennison, and said that they wanted me to be the head coach. So that, that opened up, uh, I think I was maybe 26 at the time, probably one of the youngest college head coaches coach and not the youngest in the country and uh you know fortunately uh coach dennison hired me and gave me an opportunity and as you as you said we were picked sixth out of nine teams in our conference and i think the fact that we had a lot of kids who are really hungry to win uh and we had great leadership we had a kid named Brittany Harmon who was a senior who was just everything you would want in a senior leader. So, uh, you know, when a new coach takes over, there's usually some time of, uh, where buy-in needs to take place. And we never had to go through those struggles. I think because the players said they wanted me, they were more committed to making it work. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, assistant on that team was Bob Bolden, who's the head coach at Ohio university. No, I was always so worried that I didn't really know what I was doing, that I spent a lot of time watching film and try to be prepared as I could. And I really just kind of emphasized uh, really doing well the things I did know. Mm -hmm. And so we kept it pretty simple. And, you know, we had an unusual style. That's 20, I don't know how, how many years ago that is, but 20 plus years ago where we played five out. We uh, didn't play any traditional post players. We shot the most threes in the country. So we were we were doing small ball and and doing a different style that I think caused you know at the time most people were playing two post players. They're four and five. Both probably played inside most of the time. Uh, so I think our unique style kind of helped us uh, achieve the national championship. Well, I was wondering, that was kind of one of my next questions is, you know, you went on uh, and worked in Indiana at IPFW and then went down to Florida Gulf Coast to kind of take that program uh, and establish it into the powerhouse it is today. And I was wondering, you know, how long it took you to develop that style. But you said it, at Walsh, you had already kind of gone to that five out style. Is that something that you had had developed in your mind, you know, coming into that and it was waiting just for a head coaching opportunity? Or is that something based on the personnel that just kind of developed? Like, how did, how, how did you develop your style? Well, you know, I did a lot of studying of coaches. I, I spent, you know, a lot of time studying Coach Knight's motion offense. Uh, and, you know, I really liked a lot of it, and I thought I had a pretty good understanding of it. I just wanted to create more spacing within it in terms of being able to take the ball to the basket more and, and utilize the three-point shot. 
uh, probably a lot more than coach Knight would think would be appropriate. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, like I said, I, I wasn't sure that I knew everything that I needed to know, but I felt really comfortable kind of expanding his concepts to kind of incorporate like a drive in kick game within kind of a motion principle. And, it kind of just developed. You watch a lot of film and you're like, this, this is a way we could create more space. This is the, this movement seems to be creating a lot of good shots for us. And so we would watch the film and then we'd emphasize the things that we were seeing. So, uh, so we've been running, I mean, it's kind of evolved over the years, but we've been running essentially the same, system as we ran at Walsh 20 plus years ago. Well, one of the things that in Indiana motion, you know, I played for coach Katie, you mentioned coach Knight. motion versions of that were taught, you know, growing up. Um, but one of the things that I, you know, coach Katie sometimes would get frustrated, you know, patience wise with, you know, us making reads and being able to make reads when you teach it, when you're, you know, first, uh, incorporating that from, you know, day one, what level of patience do you have to have when, you know, pro- maybe, maybe right away the, the driving lanes don't just readily appear or, or spacing isn't what you want it to be. How, how do you handle that as you, as you teach it? Well, I don't think you can really have like a free flowing type offense or motion, uh, and read offense uh, if you don't have a lot of patience because you'll spend you know the first couple of weeks and it'll look like nothing is working everything looks sloppy you're turning it over all the time and you just have to have the belief that it'll get better if you keep working at it and focusing on the right things uh, I think it definitely requires a lot more patience and teaching than just kind of following a, a, a continuity. And, uh, I think that's why, you know, the fact that it takes more time and it's more difficult to install, I think that discourages a lot of people from trying it. You mentioned that it's evolved over the years. What would you say has been the biggest changes, uh, from, you know, your first year at Florida Gulf Coast to now, and maybe what you've changed or adjusted? Well, a couple things I'd say is, you know, we were always pretty balanced when we first, you know, when we were at Walsh, IPFW, and also FGCU, you know, we'd have the ball in the, you know, the center of the floor, and then we'd be getting screening actions on each side and reading the screen. And since we went to, you know, since at Florida Gulf Coast, we've kind of evolved into a lot more three-player actions. Uh, where, you know, you have a stretch gap. So you always have one side where you can drive and then the other side could be reading, you know, the three player action. And as soon as one player cuts, the other two players work together to create a shot. So it gives you, uh, you know, I don't know if it gives you more scoring opportunities per se, but I think it gives you more space to work off the dribble um, while action is happening. So we do that. I would say the other thing we used to always have almost everybody on our team above foul line extended. Um, we still try to stretch the floor laterally as much as we could. Now we utilize the deep corners to create even more space now, especially, I mean, as you know, it's, it's a lot harder to help mm-hmm. now that 
you know, teams penetrate to kick it out to the three point line. Uh, it was a lot easier to help when there's a couple posts inside and you could get in your rotations without giving up the three. But, you know, if you can really just stretch the floor, you got good shooters, including in the corners, uh, you know, it creates a lot of problems for the defense to have to guard all that space. Well, for those listening that may not know, uh, Carl's teams have led the nation, been top five, and um, three pointers made almost, you know, almost every single year. But what's underrated, in my opinion, is your guys' ability to get easy baskets at the rim. You know, from a recruiting standpoint, um, you, I know at times you've had some taller players. Uh, have you had any back to the basket post players? And and what happens if you get one of those players? Or is that something that's just you know not really ideal for that system? Well, we had one our very first year 20 years ago who is a good one robin swain uh so we had two years with her where we were trying to get the ball inside to her and she was a really good post finisher but getting getting quality posts that are six three six four just it's really hard at a mid-major uh level uh so we kind of went a different direction you know we uh, there was a time where a lot of our kids were what you would call tweeners, mm-hmm. like they'd be five, nine, five, ten, and people didn't really know what to do with them because they didn't have any natural position. You didn't know what, you know, if they were a three, were they a four, what are they? And what I saw is just a good basketball player and a kid who could dribble it, could drive it, could shoot it. And so instead of looking for size, we started to emphasize like some we wanted versatile kids, kids that could either guard multiple positions or uh, score in multiple ways. They could take it to the rim. They could hit a three. Uh, and we understand a lot of players need time to develop. I think you mentioned that we're usually in the top five in the nation and made threes uh, per season. I think a lot of people would be surprised that a lot of the players that we recruited uh, weren't three-point shooters in high school. In fact, we've had some of our best three-point shooters who never made a three in high school. So we're in the camp where you can work on somebody's shot even when they get to the college level. And if, uh, you know, you keep it simple and they get enough repetition that uh, just about anybody can become an efficient three-point shooter. One of the other things I've noticed with your program um, and in in college basketball in general, my program as well. In fact, um, you know, I had two starters this year that were transfers and and transfers have had, you know, a tremendous impact uh, on all of us. Um, In your case, you know, even this year, I was looking at your roster, some of your transfers, major impact players. But how how do you what's what's the difference, you know, from 15 years ago where majority of the kids were probably four year players in the system where now you get these transfers uh, maybe a year maybe two years. How do you get them acclimated to your system um, in a quicker fashion than you might have a kid that's, you know, been there two to three years and had a chance to to learn from the beginning? Yeah. I mean, that's an excellent question. And, you know, we've had a lot of success with transfers uh, and we've had a lot of success with graduate transfers in particular, which they don't sit out a year. So they, you know, they're going to be going right from the beginning, they only have a few weeks of practices to get prepared to play in games. So you'd, I try to have things that maybe look like there's a lot of complexity to it, but that it's really pretty simple. And I think that's one of the reasons 
why we've had so many players who have transferred in and had some immediate success is uh, not that they don't get better at things through the years and can do more things, but they can have enough of an understanding to be productive in a, a pretty short period of time. You know, you're a guy that studies the game quite a bit. How, how much do you use uh, analytics, and if if so, like in what way? Well, I mean, I definitely look at analytics. Uh, for me, it's I mean mostly through synergy. You know, sometimes I think you can look too deeply into stuff like when there's things that are really just small numbers and you're going to judge a percentage based on something that only happened eight times or five times. Uh, you know, so I think there's definitely a, a level you can take it too far, but you know, before there were analytics, I guess we were trying to think of the game analytically, mm -hmm. uh, thinking about what kind of return each shot is. And I, I would remember, when I was at Walsh looking at the box score and saying, man, we shot about 38% on our twos and we shot about 36% on our threes. Why are we taking so many twos? Um, maybe we should emphasize getting as many looks at three as we can get. And then we've got to be able to improve our two point percentage. If, and maybe that'll happen if we can space people out a little bit better and there's more room to attack on a cut or a drive. So, you know, I definitely, uh, I think I've always kind of looked at the game analytically. Uh, and now, you know, there's, it's a lot easier for everybody to look at it that way. Cause I mean, synergy breaks all that stuff down for you pretty well. Um, I mean, how much do you use analytics? You know, a little bit, um, you know, here and there, I had a, a coach on staff um, and, and she got out of coaching. Alex Mislin was tremendous. Um, she was a math major. And uh, so we did a little bit more when, when she was there. But, you know, like you said, synergy simplifies it a little bit. And, uh, you know, I'm not smart enough to understand, you know, majority of the, you know, I got some buddies that they're dividing and multiplying. And it's like, if I got to do all that, you know, halftime, I'm going to have problems. So, you know, uh, we, we kind of look at the basics of it, but, uh, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is video technology. Uh, it's advanced so much. I mean, I think back to when I played, we played Michigan state in a, uh, big 10 tournament one year and, and I was the backup you know, point guard. So, I mean, I was, you know, not somebody who was playing. I probably played 10 minutes and I remember I got on the floor and, and I couldn't even move. I mean, they knew every move and that's back when everything was, you know, videotapes. Now everything is one click at a button. And so the, the, you know, ability to use video now is, is significantly better. How do you use film? Like what's the primary way you use film breakdown with your team? Well, I would say there's a lot of different stages to that. I mean, we watch film every day <laughs> uh, and probably longer than they want to be in film. You know, we're usually over a half hour each day in the film room going over things. If it's from practice, we're looking at, we, we always try to lump things into common themes rather than just show one edit here, then one edit there. And they're not really interrelated. Like we, we pick a couple subjects. It could be like defensive transition and how we're picking up the ball or how we're getting our matchups and conversion. Uh, and we'll have six or seven edits of that so that we can really explain the concept and they could see good examples. And then, you know, from there, we may be talking about our defensive rebounding and 
what does it look like when the other team shoots? How quickly are we reacting? Are we looking at the right things? Are we pursuing the ball and grabbing it with two hands? And so we'll have six or seven added to that. And, I mean, as you know, there's always stuff to work on, no matter how well you're playing or you think things are going great. You know there's always things that need to get better. And, you know, I, I kind of have a philosophy that you you get beat by the things you don't fix. It's not that you got surprised by something. Mm-hmm. You know something's out there and maybe you just didn't spend enough time on it or you didn't emphasize it enough and it bites you at the wrong time. But so we do that. We watch a lot of film on our opponents. And as you said, you know, we've always done that. But it used to be so much harder. I mean, you remember the tape exchange programs and you'd have to follow up on it. And you, We would spend so much time making sure we had enough video of each team and you'd have to watch every game and try to, you know, break it down. And now if I want to show an opponent, I can just put her made baskets and I can show, hey, how does she score? You can tell just by watching these 10 edits what she likes to do the most. Um we're not going to allow her to do that. She's going to have to find a different way to beat us. For, so, your, for yourself individually, let me ask you this. For yourself individually, so as you're preparing, you get into the conference season or, or, you know, as games are coming on a regular basis, obviously we have assistant coaches that provide us, you know, they watch a lot of games that provide an edit. But I know you and, and you probably, I'm probably similar in that we watch a lot of film on our own. Do you... Take me through how you start to break down an opponent. Is that do you f- focus more on your offense and how you're going to score? Do you focus more on your defense and how you're going to stop them? Do you focus more toward tendencies first and then actions later, or vice versa? Well, I watch whole games. Like I'll watch three whole games before I'll do any like breakdown or mm-hmm. synergy work. And uh, there's definitely an emphasis on our film sessions of how we stop teams more than how we're going to score. And I think that's just because of our style. We, we feel confident that if we have the right pace and we work together, that we'll get quality shots. So we don't spend as much time. We'll, we'll show, you know, maybe how they guarded us last time, how they utilize the switch or, particular players that we think are weak defenders that we want to get into closeouts and attack. Uh, But the majority of my thinking and the film sessions we show the team are how are we going to be able to stop this team? And when we're playing good teams, it usually starts out with, I don't know if you go through the same type of cycle that I do, but you watch one game and you're like, Oh man, this is going to be impossible. And then you watch another game and you're like, oh, wow, this is this team's really good. It's going to be tough. And then by the time you watch like three or four games, you see enough patterns where you start to like, wait a minute, there's a couple things we can do that could maybe cause them a little bit of confusion or slow them down. We can take away this and this, and I don't know if they'll be as good. And by the time you're done with the film preparation, you've kind of talked yourself into thinking we can do this we can get a game plan together and do this so i want to be at that point before i'm showing the stuff to the team because i want it to come across that here's our game plan if we follow the game plan we're going to be in a great position to win the game and they need to know that i believe that 
Well, we had a game this year. We were playing uh, St. John's uh, in Vegas, and I watched the first game, and I said to my staff, I said, their transition offense would be a season and highlight for us. And I'm like, how in the world are we going to stop this? And then, as you said, the more you watch, you start to find different things. And, you know, by any means, we didn't stop them, but we slowed them down enough and were able to win the game. And so that feeling as a coach of like, the more you watch, the more it becomes, you know, obvious. Some of the things that... You know, I'll watch a lot of, you know, tendencies, um, you know, with their primary players. And uh, and then when we when we give it to the team of not overcomplicating it, uh, you know, we don't have a seven you know, 17 page scouting report. I mean, our scouting reports front and back and, and pretty, you know, relatively simple in that regard. But the, uh, the defensive side of things sometimes for me is when we focus on an opponent could be different on if we're playing a team, that's a powerhouse offensive team. Uh, I may focus more on the defense. If it's a team that, you know, Hey, we, we could have a little bit more trouble scoring and maybe I'll focus more on the offense. And especially in conference play, when you've seen these opponents, you know, so many times, there's not too much variation you know, when you've been in the league as many years as you have and, you know, and now that I've been in the league, you know, several years, when you watch film with your kids uh, and then when you go to the floor, do you spend more time on actions, uh, on sets uh, or on personnel? And one thing I think is underrated is, you know, your offense gets a lot of attention. People don't realize your guys' defense year in and year out is really good. Yeah, well, we definitely spend more time thinking about and it's a combination because when we go out there, we have a scout team that has the other team's numbers out there. Mm-hmm. So we'll go over how we want each kid defended, and then we'll go over their actions, and we'll defend the, the players within the actions how we said we wanted to. So, you know, we definitely go over it and film first, then we go on the floor, and then it's a combination of, you know, we're – we're going over their sets and how we want to defend them. Uh, but it's also within the framework that we want the players who are simulating other players. If they've got a really good shot fake, I want to see that shot fake all the time. And are we going to be able to stay down? Are we going to have the discipline? You know, if the kid is attacked left all the time, I want her attacking left. And I want to see if it's something that we're going to be able to stay in front of. And I would rather the mistakes happen as we're getting prepared than in the game. Well, take me through, I think people would be interested to just hear in general, like what's your individual game day routine from, you know, whenever you get to, to shoot around then all the way up to the game. Okay. We have, you know, we start with a video segment, you know, we, we call it, you tell me because the coaches, you know, I have a hard time because I still talk and give a lot of points, but the theory is that they know the scouting report so well at that point that you know they could watch two seconds three seconds of a clip and they know what's coming next and they should be able to tell me what's going to happen rather than me tell them uh you know we have somebody kind of go over the scouting report in front of the whole team you know we pick somebody uh and then we'll go to you know we call it game prep rather than shoot around but uh I don't know if we have a typical shoot around. I I don't, I'd be interested to hear what you do, but like we, we will compete a little bit in our hour. I mean, we'll go over the sets. We'll do them at game speed. Uh, You know, we'll definitely incorporate a lot of shooting within that hour, but uh, 
we're going over our you know defensive game plan and we're doing it at game speed for probably you know 15 to 20 minutes of the shoot around um so and then uh hopefully they get a little bit of rest and they come in and they get some shots before the game and hopefully they know everything well enough that they're able to you know compete at a high level and understand the game plan and be able to execute it yeah, I'm always intrigued by you know different philosophies. You know, I played for Coach Katie. You know, our, sometimes our shoot arounds would be pretty intense. Uh, you know, my shoot arounds is are more uh, walk through. You know, I would say walk through, but we jog through. It's more of a mental. You know, we, we do a lot of shooting during that time. Uh, I you know I love the you tell me thing that you mentioned, and uh, you know I, I watch a lot of stuff on the Patriots and Bill Belichick, and you know he calls guys out and expects an answer. You know, in some of those, and one year. We, again, like I said, our scouting reports front and back. And uh, I was starting to wonder how much they were paying attention. And so on the back of the scouting report, like toward the very bottom, it said, if you get to this point on the scouting report, text coach, you know, whoever, and don't say anything else. And uh, so the next day we show up and uh, I said, okay, you know, who read their scouting report? Of course, everybody's hand goes up. I said, well, I I know that that's not the case. Uh, There's a couple of you that didn't read the scouting report. Okay, I'll give you one more time. How many, you know, have you read the scouting report? Of course, every hand goes up. Sure enough, uh, a couple kids had my assistant pull out the scouting report, hand it to him, said, read that bottom line to me. Of course, you see, you know, their face get, you know, really red. And I think that was the last time all year that they uh, didn't pay attention to the scouting report. So, you know, we had them locked in after that. Yeah, that, well, that's that's great. We definitely, we quiz our kids on the scouting report. Uh, I have a great assistant, uh, Chelsea Lyles, the associate head coach. And, you know, she's able to do it you know, like a game where they have to hit multiple choice answers on their phone. And it's another way to get them actually engaged where they can compete against each other, who can answer it right first and who has the best score. So anything to get them engaged. And I'm, I'm the exact same way as you. Our scouting report is never more than a front and back. And probably for half the games, it's just one page, the front. Um, and, but all the information that we put on there, we want them to know and then be able to do something about it. Well, and I've looked at it, you know, we have a lot of kids similar, probably really smart in the classroom. You know, these, they're really dedicated to what they're doing. I mean, they got a chemistry exam and then they're going to remember a 17 page scouting report. Like I, that doesn't make sense to me. And, and, you know, like you said, keep it simple. The things that we want you to know, you better know. And I think that's, you know, really important as your program has grown. And I mean, it's incredibly consistent. It becomes much harder to schedule. Uh, talk about the difficulties in non-conference scheduling uh, when you've gotten to a level where you guys are of being a regular NCAA tournament team. But then also, as you've become more of a regular NCAA tournament team, does that factor into you know your consideration as far as RPI seeding down the road uh, when you, when you're trying to put your schedule together? Yeah. I mean, I would like to say that we factor all that in very heavily and we do to some extent, but you know, as you know, it's who is willing to play you and you know, you could have whatever plan you want to have. Like we're going to have a lot of new players, uh, next year. So it'd be good to maybe, you know, start off a little slower and then build up and hopefully by the end of November, December, maybe play some of those BCS and top mid-majors. But 
if you can't get those games, then it's always the same teams that are looking for games at the end, which are, you know, the the South Dakota, South Dakota State, uh, you guys, Green Bay, you know, the teams that are good year in and year out are the ones who still have games to schedule. Um, so you end up with a schedule of really good mid-majors, which does help your RPI, and then uh, whatever BCS teams you can find. But, you know, it's definitely a, a struggle. We typically don't finish our schedule until August or September of each year, which a lot of people will be surprised by that because they're already done with scheduling for next year and are working on the following year. But we have a really hard time uh, finding games. Yeah, no, I, I, you and I have talked about that before and, and it's probably one of the more stressful things I think is, you know, getting that schedule complete. Uh, you know, we're starting to get to a point where it's more, more difficult to schedule and, um, you know, we, we added another team to our league, so that took two games off. So that was actually, you know, kind of a relief, um, you know, in that regard. What about recruiting? Recruiting shifted dramatically, I feel like, even in the time I've been, you know, a head coach. You know, what do you, what are some of the changes that you've noticed, uh, you know, to the way recruits uh, make decisions, uh, how, your approach? You know, what, what's, what's shifted over the years? Oh, well, you know, I, I think... Uh, Sometimes there's more people involved in the decision than there used to be. Uh, you know, I, for years, only talked to the student athlete, and then I would call, like, the high school coach or AU coach to find out more information about the kid. And now it seems like there's more, you know, family members involved. There's, you know, more coaches involved or a trainer they work with or something like that than there used to be. And then – uh, with the change of so many people going the transfer market now, um, I, I think there's a lot more BCS schools that are utilizing transfers a lot more. So, you know, there was a time where as a mid-major, a good mid-major, you would be a really attractive option for a good kid that was looking for a new home. And now they're getting a lot of BCS offers, which they probably weren't getting seven, eight years ago. Um, just cause there's more turnover within BCS programs now as well. So I think everything trickles down a lot of it. You know, when we first started a division one, most of our kids didn't have it, but one division one offer us. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we get kids that, you know, maybe start are more highly regarded or, or have a lot more offers, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're better players. Uh, so I don't know. We just try to keep every Avenue open, whether it's international junior college transfer, grad transfer, freshman. Uh, I feel like you can't really close down any option if you want to get the best team possible. I saw a statistic the the other day of you know some of these kids at maybe a mid major level uh, transferring you know up to BCS, so double figure scores at a mid major. And I think the uh, person that did the study, not one of those, uh, went on to be a double figure score at a high major level. And uh, because of you know all the changes and shifts, um, it does you know it has changed things quite a bit. You mentioned, uh, I think one thing that's shifted 
you mentioned early on, you know, when you were recruiting a kid and you may offer a kid uh, that that maybe only had one or two offers, but like that didn't get publicized. So your eye as a recruiter or the things that you understood and appreciated, uh, you know, you would, you know, get that kid. Uh, now, um, you know, when you find a kid like that, uh, it's going to be blasted all over the internet and every school, you know, uh, in America is going to see that. And I think that's changed the way social media has had an influence on uh, some of those things. The, you know, kids are now, uh, they went from announcing your top five, to photoshopping your top five, to videoing your top five. It's like, I see some of these uh, videos on the internet. I'm thinking some of these kids need to be in Hollywood for, you know, working for Spielberg than they do doing, you know, basketball stuff. But uh, has, I mean, have you noticed an impact with social media and the way information travels in regards to recruiting? Uh, I mean, for sure. Same, same as what you just said is now you know who everybody's offering because it's, been tweeted and retweeted and uh you know and and as you said we would deal with a lot of kids that maybe nobody knew about but if they tweet that that they got offered by us that's going to pique some people's interest to take a closer look at that kid maybe we need to see her and then all of a sudden we're competing against five six more schools that maybe otherwise wouldn't have seen the player so uh there, there's definitely, you, you know, to have something be that immersive with our players and with the recruits as social media that they're involved in all the time, uh, it's got to be having a major impact and probably in ways that we're not even realizing right now. Yeah, it's, I mean, it'll be interesting to see, especially, you know, five and 10 years down the road. I mean, I wonder if some recruits see some of these coaches and think that they're just going to go to college and dance for four years because of all these, you know, dance videos we see. And it's like, I, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around all of that. Um, one of my favorite things uh, is in the summertime, and, and obviously you're in Florida, so, so you know, I don't see you until we are out on the road recruiting, but just being able to sit and talk, you know, basketball with you, uh, I know how much you study the game. What are some other coaches that you study and it doesn't even have to be basketball it could be other sports and uh, maybe some of the things that you've you've taken or, or implemented in your program oh well, that's a you know that's a great question because we've implemented so many things from so many different places um you know in terms of, you know we've i've taken a some stuff from football like we talk about gap integrity and setting the edge and uh you know for probably 15 to 20 years i've had a board scripted of the first you know 10 to 15 actions we want to run in a game kind of like uh uh, bill walsh used to do uh with the west coast offense so in some ways i think football might be ahead of basketball and some things and so i like reading about football coaches uh you know reading about bill belichick and and you know when they have documentaries on on what they're doing i like to watch it and see if there's anything you can pick up on uh in terms of basketball there's so much stuff that you got to be careful because like every day there's stuff that's posted on twitter and i look at the play and i'm like i really like that (laughs) and if i put in all the stuff i really liked that's all we would be doing is putting in plays (laughs) um but you know, I really enjoy watching like Kelly Graves teams at Oregon. I, you know, I, I really like the way 
not only just what he runs, but how his demeanor and how he handles his players. And it seems like he always is able to get the most out of them. Uh, Scott Ruck at Oregon State. I love watching the way they they uh, compete defensively. Um, so there, there's so many coaches. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're probably like me. You you watch all these teams and you're like, wow, you know that's really good. And this is a really good coach. And you could probably for hundreds of coaches, if you really did a deep dive and studied them, uh, where you could really learn quite a bit, maybe incorporate some stuff into your program. Well, you know, I mentioned football. I, I love football. I study probably football coaches as much as anything. And, um, you know, one of the things for us was there was an article, uh, several years ago, uh, about when, the Patriots had that big season when they they lost in the championship, but were undefeated before that. Is how they were calling plays and the way that they called it went instead of being, you know, Red Moon Dog twenty seven right flip. Like they were able to say, you know, certain things that simplified it. And uh, you know, we've tried to do that with the way that we have play calls. And you know, we have certain things that may look like they're different plays, but reality, it's the same play. It's just you know, subtle, um, you know, differences. The other thing was we took from a football program was. Uh, uh, Mike Lombardi talked about, you know, the ways that you can get, you know, uh, you want to go into a game, uh, to, to figure out how, how not to lose is basically what his thought process was. And it was, um, you know, I kind of took that to basketball of, uh, you know, don't, don't foul, don't give people extra points. Um, you know, turnovers, limit turnovers and, you know, uh, points off turnovers and then second chance points. Like if you just started there, uh, you'd have a, probably a pretty good leg up on, you know, teams that you'd, uh, go against. I also know you're a big reader. Uh, what's the best book you've read recently? Um, and, and any book recommendations you have? Well, the book I just finished, which was good, is Full Dissidents Notes from an Uneven Playing Field. And it just talks about sports and really societal issues with that. But, uh, you know, some of the books that I enjoy the most, like in the last couple of years, is one was called How Not to Be Wrong. And it's basically just a statistical book, uh, you know, analyzing different situations through statistics. And then uh, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Uh, you know, I really enjoy kind of the social psychology of things and, and the biases people have and how you can, you know, try to uh, better take in information so that you can kind of recognize some of the own, maybe some of the things you do yourself, you know, and, and like that. Uh, I'd probably do it all the time. Like I see something that looks like something we do and I immediately like it. Mm -hmm. And it's probably because it's similar to what we do rather than, uh, you know, something that would be something we would never try. So, you know, those are, I, you know, I like to kind of read those. They're not full science books, but they got a little bit of math to them. And I watch, I, I do read, I've read quite a few uh, basketball analytics books over the last couple of years, although their titles elude me, but they're, you know, they're really good to show what the evolution of basketball has been and stated in a, a you know, a statistical way. 
Yeah, no, I, I enjoy, you know, hearing what different books, you know, you've read. I, I recently read uh, Bob, Bob Iger, uh, who was the head of Disney, uh, his you know biography. And uh, besides just great storytelling and, and interesting, you know, his career being really interesting, uh, his ability to take risks and calculated risks and, you know, what, what those, uh, ended up being. So, um, similar, I, I enjoy, enjoy those, you know, those type of books. Last question for you, before you get out of here, you know, you were one of the people I think that was ahead of the curve on, on the trend in college basketball. You were utilizing the three point line and positionless basketball before really anybody else. And so I was just curious with some of the things that you've studied or watched, you know, what you see is, uh, you know, any trends going forward. <laughs> Wow, that's a great ending question. It it you always wonder where things might start swinging in the other direction is what I, I'm wondering is like it used to be really inefficient for unless you had an exceptional post player to throw the ball into the post, but I mean there was a time where you would they throw it into the post, you trap it, you would dig it out, you would and now you're so afraid of leaving shooters, maybe maybe utilizing the post becomes a more efficient offense because of how the game evolved to. So I think you always just got to, you have to kind of watch out because just because something has worked and for us maybe worked for a number of years, doesn't mean it will always will. And it may not always be the most efficient way to play. So I think you got to constantly evaluate yourself. Is this still make the most sense if we want to score the most points per possession or does this make the most sense if we are trying to uh, eliminate other people's points per possession or, or reduce it so I don't know you got any ideas about what you think the next you know I I, I do uh, it's funny because you know our I ask about the post, like we, we use a post. In fact, uh, you know, it's, you mentioned the inside out basketball. Um, you know, we had a post player that, you know, was player of the year in our league and, uh, she got doubled a lot and we led the league in three pointers, you know, made, um, but also, you know, we're pretty efficient. So, um, you know, we've always had kind of a big six, two, six, three post player. So I'm always intrigued, you know, hearing, um, different things. I don't know if this is a trend, but I was just curious what you thought about it. How did you feel about, uh, the shot clock and reset to 20 uh, on missed baskets versus going back to the full 30? Uh, well, I think I like it, although, you know, it took me a little bit to get used to it. Uh, you know, especially, you know, you're fouled with, let's say, 25, 26 seconds on the clock, and I'm saying last shot, and then it's like, oh, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Now that it's 20 seconds left, it's not the same situation as it's been for ever. So, you know, I... I, I like the things that help increase the pace in the game. You know, I, I would be for things that probably a lot of people wouldn't be for. Uh, I would say reduce the shot clock even more, widen the lane. All those things are anything that helps, you know, open things up on the floor and, and causes the game to be played faster, I think is is good for – uh, good for the game and good for the growth of the game. 
Yeah, I think those two things coincide of the speed, you know, and the pace um, and continuing to allow movement. Um, you know, yeah. I watch a men's game sometimes and it's just, you know, they're beating each other up and nobody can get in the paint. And then, you know, somebody gets bored and calls out a ball screen and that's, you know, that's the, that's the offense. And, and some of that's predicated, not that there's not, you know, there's not more of a flow, but there isn't a flow when they're, you know, constantly, they're not calling the hand checks. They're not calling the physicality. So I like the idea of, of quickening the pace with the shot clock. In fact, this year, I mean, we had to do something this year that was different and that we had to practice. Okay. Miss shot, boom, ball gets thrown out and then flowing quickly, you know, back into your offense versus, you know, you get an offensive rebound, you don't have it. You know, even if you're setting up a play or just getting into your offense, you could take a little bit of time. That 20 second shot clock comes quick. And so, you know, finding, uh, getting our kids that, that confidence and, and understanding, okay, this is what we're looking for and practicing that that was something we hadn't done before. Is that any, did you guys have to adjust to that at all? Well, what we did for that situation is, you know, we did, you know, like they have the three on three international competitions now, or I guess it's, uh, they do it in the U.S. too, but where, and, and I all had the timing wrong. We used 12 seconds, but every time there's a change of uh, possession, you know, there's 12 seconds on the clock and you had to get the ball outside the three point line and had to get a good shot within that 12 seconds. And that'll the wear you out fast. Mm-hmm. And it, or, you know, you can't take a break, you know, that, you know, that rebound becomes kind of like transition defense. You got to get matched up and, and go quick. And then offensively, you know, you can't take waste three dribbles and, you know, only have two passes. You got to get the ball moving and getting into some actions if you're going to get a good shot. So that's, that's kind of the way that we, we approach that. And I, I liked it. So I think we'll incorporate uh, some more of that. We didn't do as much of it once games started, but it was something that we did like during workouts and in the preseason. I love the timeout advance rule. Um, you know, what's your approach, you know, with that one, I mean, how often are you just drawing something up in the dirt that, you know, you haven't practiced? Um, and, and two, you know, I imagine there's a significant number of plays that you have for those situations that you do practice, you know, what, how do you cycle through those and how much time do you give, um, you know, to end of game situations? Well, I know I, I mentioned Coach Lyles earlier. She's always getting on me to spend more time on on special situations, um, and we should probably spend more time on it. Uh, you know, you get to the point where you know we'll play a game where I, it's a drill that other teams do called like seventy six or like both teams start at seventy one, and as soon as some one team gets seventy six, you put two minutes on the clock, mm. and then the game plays out from there. The thing is, it takes a lot of time. You're devoting 15 to 20 minutes of practice and the end of the game might end up being a good situation where you have to, you know, get a two for one late or you have to, uh, you know, advance the ball and get a good shot. But sometimes it ends up being one team's up by eight with 40, you know, 30 seconds. And it doesn't really even recreate the situation that you were hoping to, um, but, you know, to answer your questions, like when we advance the ball, we almost always just run a play that we've practiced. Uh, and there have been times this year where, you know, there's a game where we were down like, you know, I think maybe nine or something with 
with uh, 24 seconds. And I'm like, well, I don't want to burn one of our plays because mm-hmm. if we show up right now, you know, I think this is going to be effective when we use it. I don't, I don't want to use that. So that'd be the time where I might draw something up and say, Hey, let's get it in here and let's, you know, set a double flare and create a shot off of it or something of that nature. But a lot of times, you know, I, I kind of think that the advance has maybe been used too often. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because it's under a minute, you don't, why use that timeout to advance? And, you know, for us, we won a game this year against South Dakota State. They took the lead on us with like 10 seconds to go. Um, and that, you know, they made a basket, they're excited. And I think they're probably expecting that we'll take a timeout to advance it. Cause that's, I would think what most people would do in that situation. But, you know, I think scoring in transition is a lot easier than scoring even on set plays from the side. So we just got the ball in quick and we attacked and we were, we were lucky to beat them down the floor and, and get a layup. Uh, so, you know, with 50 some seconds, do you really need to advance it and, and drop a play or is the five seconds in transition, at least you got the opportunity for a transition basket. And then if it doesn't look good, you could always call a timeout from there and, and get into one of your plays. Well, I also think it makes you, you know, maybe a little bit more judicious in how you use your timeouts throughout the course of the game where, you know, maybe a tendency is to call a quick timeout or, you know, what have you, because the team goes on a run of saving those so that you have them in those situations where, as you mentioned, you know, maybe you don't use it right under the minute, but, you know, 20 seconds left and you're down two. I mean, you could really make that a long game with, you know, three or four timeouts, depending on, you know, fouling and, and situational stuff. You mentioned improving the game. Uh, any other, any other ideas you said you have some outside the box ideas, any other ideas you have of growing the game, improving the game? Ooh, well, I'm trying to think, you know, I had some outside the box ideas about like free throws and I kind of got, sh- uh, shot down. This was a long time ago about like, you only shoot one free throw and it's, how many, you know, if it's supposed to be two shots, it's one free throw for two shots. If it's, you got fouled on a three pointer, it's one free throw for three points. Um, so anyways, it was like, I don't know, seven, eight years later where they were trying it. I think in the G league, mm-hmm. they were actually using that rule <laughs> that, uh, and then I was watching, uh, Oh, what's the show with Kornheiser and Wilbon? PTI, yep. PTI. And so I actually showed our team this because I gave them my thing that I, I forget who printed it, but it was on the internet of my suggestion for the game about the free throw situation. And so I let the team read it that that we had this idea a long time ago. And then we showed the PTI clip where like Will Bond saying, this is the dumbest idea in the history of sports. Uh, I like that idea. In fact, you know, when we were preparing for the conference tournament uh, and we did kind of a, a pseudo scrimmage just to keep the pace, we did the same thing. You know, you make a free throw for three, two or one, whatever the, you know, whatever it calls for. I thought it sped things up. Yeah. That's how we do every scrimmage for us too is, you know, you don't want to spend all that time just stop. You want to keep the pace going, build conditioning, get them, get some more reps in. So, so we do that, but, uh, 
I, I don't know. I don't. Th- I'm not sure that it'll ever come to fruition. But I thought it was hilarious when it was considered the dumbest idea ever. <laughs> I like that. One one of my things is more in in regards to you know watching the game um, as a fan, uh, as an officiating. Uh, you know, rule would be, uh, I don't know, maybe, I mean, maybe you guys don't experience this a whole lot, but you know, I, I'm so tired of the flopping and I'm not talking about somebody trying to take a charge, you know, and, that, and you know, they fall down. That's, that's part of the game. You know, those are going to be, you know, 50, 50 calls sometimes, but I'm talking about, you know, random player runs down the floor and uh, somebody steps in and looks like they got shot by sniper fire, uh, you know, out of the ceiling and uh, officials reacting to that. Now at the same time, I don't, I don't, fault the officials because they're, you know, their heads on a swivel and they're seeing that. And, um, you know, to me, there should be, I don't, I don't know what the exact answer would be, but some kind of punishment. And, you know, maybe the first time you lump it in with like a, uh, a warning for a delay of game violation. And after that, it becomes, you know, a technical of some kind, but, you know, I just hate, I hate when we're coaching, I hate when I'm watching, you know, games and, and people are just dropping, you know, off the ball. Uh, I don't think it's appealing to the eye and I think it slows the game down. Yeah, definitely. And we're a team that takes a lot of charges and admittedly, sometimes there's not a ton of contact. Um, you know, we've had some players that are just kind of good at (laughs) embellishing a little bit, (laughs) but you know, and and nobody believes like when we teach it, we're like, Hey, stay firm, stay tough, like only fall down if you have to. Yeah. And, and, but, you know, some kids have played a certain way their whole life and are good at it and they continue to do it. And when the officials call it, it's hard for you to say, uh, you know, quit doing that. Yeah. Um, well, I think I'm referring, not even necessarily that when the person has the ball, I'm talking about just away from, yeah, we had a couple I, instances this year where, I mean, a, a kid is literally like jogging to their spot and a kid, uh, no contact, just dove, just absolutely just completely dives on the floor. You know, ref sees the reaction. Oh, you know, foul. My kid's looking around like, you know, what in the heck just happened? Yeah. I, we've had, we saw some of that this year where like we would cut, and somebody would jump right in front of our cut and mm-hmm. then fall down like it's a charge. And it's like, well, to me, that's not freedom of movement. Yeah. Like, and, uh, it's not the same as being like off the dribble where maybe you're expecting somebody to come help. Yeah. Like you're cutting to the basket and somebody just jumps in front of your cut to me, you know, that, that should be a block <laughs> because you don't have appropriate time to avoid the person, but yeah. you're right. It's becoming a bigger part of the game. You mentioned widening the lane. How, how realistic or, or do you think that's something that's potentially, you know, will happen in the coming years? I do think that'll probably take place. Um, now there's some different, like I just watched a, a coaching clinic today where somebody said they thought that widening the lane would hurt the creation of three point shots because people play, you know, they find their help spots as the elbow and blocks and they will now be closer to getting out to the three point line. So, I mean, that's not the way I see it, but I'm always uh, cognizant that I could be wrong and it may not play out the same way that, that I think it'll play out. Would you be in favor of moving the, I, I thought it was confusing the two, three point lines this year. Uh, I'd be fine with them moving it back to, you know, where the men moved it back to. I was curious your thoughts. Cause you guys shoot a ton of threes. Yeah. I, I didn't want them to move it back, but 
uh, it, this year was crazy because we're, we're saying to our kids, you know, between those two lines is where is like our, you know, shooting band. Mm-hmm. We want to get shots in that band. And we're, I, I would say that definitely over half of our threes were behind the men's line. Like they just kind of naturally went to the furthest line and shot behind that. And, you know, if that's going to be the case, then there, you know, there's no point in having both lines unless, you know, I always hate to say that because like maybe I should do a better job coaching and getting them used to shooting it within that band rather than to just give up on it. But well, it's but funny you I, say that. It's funny you say that, though, because we actually had a staff meeting where, you know, there was a lot of I mean, it's probably a half hour debate on that very thing because we'd gone to practice. We watched the film and we're same thing you just said. Seventy five percent of the shots were starting to be behind the men's three point line. And so uh, we came back to practice and we were watching them, you know, just shoot throughout practice and they naturally gravitated toward it. Well, then we talked about it and we emphasized it. And they still really never quite got back in my, you know, one assistant that says, if they're going to go out there anyways, why don't we just practice from behind there? And, uh, you know, ultimately we kind of settled on that, but I'm not sure it was, you know, the right thing. I, I don't know. No, I mean, we did the same thing. We start like shooting one, three from inside the line. And then the next shot would be behind the men's line. And, uh, but you know, the partially that's giving in and then, you know, worse yet, you know, occasionally when the line was further in, we'd have kids shoot two feet behind it. Well, now the kids are shooting two feet behind the men's line. And it's like, you would have never shot that shot if the men's line wasn't down there because you'd be so far, you're so far away from the women's line. It's almost like it doesn't look quite as bad when the the men's line is out there. It's like, ah, she's only two, three feet behind the line. It's like, yeah, but that's the men's line. This is so, yeah, I know what you're saying. And my guess is that it's going to end up being one line. Yeah. I'd be in favor of it. Like we had a kid this year, shot the ball really well on one of our best three point shooters, but then hit a little bit of a slump. And, you know, I don't even know if it was so much of a slump as I was looking at the shot and, you know, she was a good two feet behind the men's line. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, you know, scoot up to give yourself some confidence. I mean, we don't have to shoot it that far out. And if you take away that line, you're right. It looks even, you know, it looks even wilder on film to shoot at that, you know, from that deep. So, but well, Hey, I I really appreciate you uh, joining the podcast. You're one of my favorite people to talk to and run into on the road. And I know a lot of coaches and and people enjoy listening to this because you've got a uh, unique perspective and think outside the box and uh, uh, definitely continue to follow your program and and, uh, look forward to seeing you on the road. Well, thank you for having me one Two, Congratulations on a a great year. And uh, I know this was going to be a, this was a special year for you and going to the NCAA tournament would be magical. And, uh, but you know, it's out of our control and you, you did everything that you could do and had a, hopefully your team appreciates all the success that they had. Absolutely. I appreciate that. And uh, thanks again for joining us. When we come back, a Tom Brady expert, the guest you never knew you needed. My brother, Trent Parkinson. We have a special guest for you this week. You've been watching ESPN. The only news lately has been about 
America's favorite quarterback, Tom Brady. You've heard from every analyst on ESPN, the NFL Network, but you have not heard from this expert. My brother, Trent Parkinson. Trent, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Very excited to be on. Uh, Couldn't be more perfect of a topic to bring me on. All right. So uh, first of all, explain to the audience your background and and how you became a Tom Brady fan and maybe your level of uh, fandom. Sure. Um, So I was the only one in our family to be born in Michigan. Um, So growing up, I wanted a Michigan team to cheer for. Um, And so on every every Saturday on ABC uh, were the Michigan Wolverines. And so some of my first memories uh, are watching uh, Tom Brady play for Michigan. Um, And so I just uh, cheered for him there. And then when he uh, took off, uh, you know, in New England and got his first start in that first year, Cheered, cheered him on and been cheering for him ever since. And your kids uh, are decked out in Patriots gear. We've ordered every kind of thing for your children, correct? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I, I will make it clear that I I am uh, telling them to cheer for the Colts uh, so they don't get made fun of as they grow up. Okay. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. So uh, I, I want to get to how you felt uh, on the day that Tom said he was actually leaving the Patriots. Now, I know you probably thought this coming was coming. You're a glass. You're not even glass half empty. You're a glass with holes in it. Uh, so you probably expected this to happen. But what was your feeling when it was finally... Uh, a finale that he was leaving the Patriots. Yeah. You know, I went through so many uh, emotions leading up to that. You know, I was reading everything you could possibly read. Um, It seemed like one day somebody had me convinced he was staying. Another day they had me convinced he was leaving. Um, But uh, I was honestly hoping he would, you know, end his career. Um, as a as a patriot, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, at 40, you know, he's going to be 43 when he starts next year if we have an NFL season. Um, and, you know, people are going to be judging him based off of his 43-year-old self leaving to go play for another team because um, it's not like he's leaving at 33. So that does make me a little nervous. Um, but I am I am excited just to see what he can do with uh, receivers that are above uh, six feet um, that are athletic and uh, see how that goes next year so so let me ask you this whose fault do you think it is him leaving the Patriots do you think the Pats wanted him gone do you think Tom was just tired of the whole thing I mean what were what was your analysis well, uh, um, from the articles I've read, um, I guess after, which is funny that you were doing this podcast on 328 because a lot of Patriots fans are making jokes. That's 328 day. Um, but after the Patriots came back from being down, uh, you know, three to 28 against the Falcons um, after that Super Bowl, there was a rumor that, uh, and I think it's true, that the John Lynch, uh, the GM for the 49ers, called uh, Bill and said, can we trade for Jimmy Garoppolo? And uh, uh, Bill thought about it and he said, uh, no, but I'll trade Tom. And I think they were close to having something worked out. But then, uh, you know, Robert Kraft, who thinks, you know, treats Tom as a son, basically uh, said, no, no, that's never going to happen. Um, and so then, though, then over the next few years, um, even leading up, to, you know, there was rumor he might, you know, he was going to hold out uh, up until last year until they finally struck a deal um, to give him a little bit of a raise. Um but yeah, so he uh, 
so I'm not really uh, surprised. But uh, yeah, I think I think it, I think it's probably both sides a little bit. You know, I think he I think he wants to be, you know, appreciated. I think you know you know Bill's not really the pat you on the back type ever. Uh, he's never been for really any of his players. And I think after 20 years and six Super Bowls, you know, Tom would like to get paid and you know uh, get a little, get a few more pats on the back, uh, which Bill's not going to do. And I think Bill's out to prove that he can win without him. So, do you think Bill made the right move? Um, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I'm going to say no, just because I take Tom's side. Uh, you know, if, if he would have, you know, if he would have had a quarterback, uh, you know, ready to go, or he would have made a move this off season, but, uh, I guess he's rolling with Jared Stidham. Uh, so I guess only time will tell. What would you say to the, he won six Super Bowls, you know, two of those Super Bowls, um, the, when they were down 28 to three and then the Carolina Super Bowl, you know, Tom put up, you know, big numbers, but in every other Super Bowl, they, you know, they didn't score a lot of points. Yeah. Um, and you know, if you go back to the 13 to three Super Bowl against the Rams, you look at how he played last year, you know, do you think, uh, do you think that Tom still has, you know, has enough to get his team to the playoffs or even a Super Bowl if he has the weapons that you think that he's going to have? Uh, I do. Um, and that's just because of, you know, I don't think there's anybody in the history of the NFL, uh, just obviously, you know, I'm a fan, but that works harder, studies more, uh, takes care of his body more. Um, and, uh, so I just think his smarts for the game, there's probably nobody, you know, that's played the game that's been much, you know, smarter. Um, and so I think that alone, um, you know, will, will help him. Uh, and you know, where, where he's gone, Tampa Bay has a really good defense and good weapons. So, you know, last year, I want to say Tampa had seven or eight games where they lost by less than a touchdown. And it's because uh, Jameis, you know, had the infamous 30 and 30, so 30 TDs and 30 um, interception season. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I do. I will say their, um, their division got a lot better. Um, obviously, the Saints signed Emmanuel Sanders. And I think I saw the other day that the Falcons, with their moves, I think all 11 players that will be starting uh, were all first round picks. Uh, some, you know, some have fallen away, but obviously they were first round picks uh, for a reason. So obviously their their division's not going to be uh, easy. So, well, I think a couple things. Uh, one, obviously, you mentioned he's he's probably tired of, of everything in, in New England. I think nothing spoke spoke louder to that than he, him taking twenty five million. Uh, you know, I think if he'd taken a much larger number, you know, you could say it was a contract issue. But I mean, he really didn't didn't break the bank. You know, and going to, um, you know, the Bucks. I think warm weather uh, is a factor. You know, as you get older, playing in the cold of New England, you know, I think being in warm weather for, you know, at least half of your games and then you look and you play the Saints and the Falcons or Dome teams, um, you know, that's I think that plays a factor. Obviously, better weapons uh, from an offensive standpoint. So, you know, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see. He doesn't have to go against Patrick Mahomes or. Mr. Jackson in, uh, you know, in Baltimore. So yeah. the last thing I'm going to ask you is uh, when we're looking back two years from now, who is better off with the decision, Tom Brady or the Patriots and Bill Belichick? Ooh. I'm going to say probably two years from now, I think 
Tom probably wins this one down the road. You know, I think Bill will have will have success again. Um, I don't I don't expect them to probably have the Patriots currently to have success in the next few years. Um, but you know, give them a few more years, and I think they'll have success. So in the immediate future, I uh, I think Tom will you know win the win the split. I'm going to hedge, hedge the bets there and say that uh, they actually, it was the best move for both parties. Sometimes, you know, when you hear about a trade or something, one team, you know, pulls the wool over the eyes on the other team. I don't think that's the case here. I think both people are going to end up, I think it was the right time for the Patriots. And I think for Tom, you know, if he wants to, to continue to have success, uh, it's kind of like Peyton going to the Broncos where, you know, Peyton had a better defense, you know, when he went out there. And I think in Tom's case, he's going to have a solid defense with better, better options uh, last thing before i get you out of here have you ordered any bucks gear yet uh not yet not yet but it, it will happen i guess i just sort of uh want to see him uh, actually play a game first and unfortunately with all that's going going on right now you know who knows if next season will even happen but the, the day he dons a jersey i will buy i will buy something buccaneers i will ride with them until he retires forever all right well that's our tom brady expert uh trent parkinson we will be bringing him back maybe halfway through next year and see where do we stand where are the patriots and where are the bucks trent thanks for joining us Thank you. Special thanks to Carl Smesco for joining us on the pod this week. Absolutely love the conversation. Great to hear how he approaches his program on a day-in, day-out basis, the way he plans and the way he thinks outside the box. Also, a special thanks to my brother, Trent Parkinson, for joining us to talk a little Tom Brady. want to give a shout-out to uh, all the medical personnel out there right now battling uh, this uh, horrible virus. The people on the front lines, uh, our thoughts and our prayers are with you. You guys are the real heroes. And uh, we're definitely grateful uh, for the courage you show on a daily basis. Thanks everybody for listening and everybody stay safe. 